and welcome to another episode of the Hypocritical Podcast. I'm Olena Hugh, and joining me, Rick Kuahara. Hey, Olena. We've got a stacked show for you today. Lots going on. We're going to recap what's in the news, who's winning, who's failing, and of course, some predictions for you. So Rick, what can you tell us about what's happening right now? I think what everybody is paying attention to right now is the coronavirus and what's happening in China. And, you know, there's a lot of um, news around that. And unfortunately, when there's a crisis, um, there's, you know, bad actors, bad people trying to capitalize on it. And that's what we're finding right now. Um, there's actually news that there are hackers who are using um, malware posing as health information about the coronavirus outbreak to infect devices. So China, uh, this was first found in China, but it's, you know, it's going out um, to different countries. And uh, what they found was on their social networking platform, WeChat, that there was someone who was um, sending out suspicious uh, files, uh, files, and so when someone clicks on it, it downloads um, malware to the device, and then it lets the hacker control that device and get information out of it. Mm. Uh, fortunately, it's not contained just to WeChat. Um, there's been multiple phishing campaigns sent to emails um, where the email is posing that, you know, there's information about the coronavirus or, you know, click on this link to uh, find out how you can prevent, get your, uh, prevent from being infected. Um, and that when people click on those attachments or links, then it downloads, you know, malware to the computer. Okay. And it lets uh, hackers access the computers and take control of it where they can, you know, um, download, you know, sensitive information that's on there or even use the computer itself um, as sort of a botnet uh, to take control of other computers. And it's just a really, really unfortunate thing that's happening. So when people are getting these emails from people, it's, it's just like any other email that you're getting, you know, always be suspicious of any link that you see before you actually click on it. Interesting, because I would think it's counterintuitive to click on or download something that says coronavirus right now, (laughs) as much as you're trying not to contract something. Yeah, true. But you know, when there's, yeah, fear there, there's people trying to take advantage of, um, take advantage of that. Mm -hmm. And uh, obviously, if you don't know the source of something that's sent to you, don't open it, don't download it, Uh, just be aware and um, what else is happening in the news that you can tell us about? Well, something else that, um, you know, we talked about a couple episodes ago um, was the maze ransomware um, attacks that have been happening. So the FBI issued a report, um, an alert about maze. And, you know, we talked about that a couple episodes ago. Well, it happens that now uh, the hackers using the maze ransomware are actually posting the stolen health data online. So in November, that that uh, the Maze hacking group threatened to publicly release stolen data to extort money from the people that um, they, from the organizations that they had hacked. And so typically, 
when ransomware hackers aren't trying to access data or anything, they're just trying to lock down your system uh, and hold that for ransom for you to pay out. However, the maze hackers actually infect the system, lock it down, and then take the data. And then they are threatening to post it online if you don't pay the ransom. And so what we're seeing now is that data actually being published. So one of the largest medical data postings appears to be from uh, New Jersey's Medical Diagnostic Laboratories, or MD Lab. The Maze Hackers website claims that it encrypted 231 workstations during the attack. And when MD Lab refused to pay the demand, the hackers published a bunch of it uh, to force negoci negotiations with MD Lab to try and say, okay, here's a little bit of it that's online. Now we'll post the rest if you don't pay us. Just so in that, case you were going to try to call their bluff, they're saying nope. <laughs> right, exactly. So it's just another um, layer that's being added onto the ransomware attacks that have been happening. So there's about 29 companies that's listed on the Maze website as organizations that um, have not paid them. So those are companies where potentially the data that these uh, hackers have stolen could get posted online. And do they happen to know how much data was stolen? Uh, well, in the case of the MD lab, there's an estimate of about 100 gigabytes of data was stolen. And they have published, you know, just like 10% of that. Hmm. Crazy. And, uh, you know, obviously a lot to learn from this situation. What do you recommend? I mean, as always, I'm saying similar things to what we said before is you want to be sure that your systems are updated and patched, um, especially for a lot of these organizations, older healthcare organizations where they have legacy systems that they're using. A lot of times there's easy for gaps to be in there. So making sure that that's properly patched up and to just look for signs of compromise. Uh, you have to assume that someone will get past your firewall. So have the right policies, programs, uh, procedures in place that you can identify if something has happened so that you can stop it right away. Mm -hmm. And then, of course, you know, training your staff is always a big thing because a lot of the times uh, ransomware gets in through phishing attacks and that has a human element to it where, you know, it's going to someone's inbox and someone needs to be able to recognize, hey, this is fishy. I'm not going to click on it at all. Um, so training your staff and having a good backup and recovery process is going to be key as well. Mm -hmm. I don't ever recall any kind of training when it came to email back in the day. So uh, definitely good to heed the warnings. Yeah, for sure. And it's something that I think every organization, not just healthcare, but everybody's going to have to make sure their staff is trained on. Mm -hmm. Definitely. All right. Well, we're going to talk now about good news, those that are winning this week. Yeah. And some good news out of New Jersey. So not all bad news um, with uh, MD Lab, but uh, the governor, Phil Murphy, signed a regional health hub program into law a couple weeks ago. So this is the legislation um, basically names uh, a few um, health centers in as uh, regional health hubs in New Jersey. Okay, so these health hubs are going to take the place of the accountable care organizations or ACOs um, 
but they are going to have the same goal of helping improve health health outcomes of those on Medicaid, so often the most vulnerable populations. So the goal is under the new model, each hub is going to serve as a local expert and and conduit for state health priorities. So it's going to be able to decentralize a little bit um, and hopefully move faster and um, be more useful uh, out on the regions uh, that they're helping. So why is this latest news important? Uh, it's important because it's you know, hard to mobilize and work across you know wide areas of big populations. So for New Jersey, you know this regional health hub model can help involve the community better, and it could definitely serve as a model for other states to emulate. That's exactly what I was thinking as well. That they could be a leader in showcasing. You know, this is a model of what potential could be. Okay, and in other news, something else that's exciting that's going on out on the West Coast is the University of California, San Francisco's uh, Accelerator launched a program to help improve digital health access. So they call it Solve Health Tech, and it's from UCSF's Health Equity Accelerator. And they began a research project to identify and eliminate barriers preventing the underserved populations from accessing healthcare uh, because it doesn't matter if you have all this awesome, you know, digital health access apps, whatever it is, if the people you're trying to serve can't actually get to it. So they have partnered with Applied VR, which is a company that's developing virtual reality based um, therapeutics. And they are um, going to interview um healthcare providers about the best ways to integrate VR and other digital health tools into systems with large Medicaid populations, which as we just talked about are a lot of times those underserved populations. So they're going to share their findings with applied VR to try and solve the issues of how do you get, you know, these digital health solutions to be used and accessed by all these different populations. Um, so especially where, you know, there's, you know, not everybody has access to, you know, the internet, um, or the technology, like a smartphone, we take it for granted for ourselves, but, you know, in the, not everybody has, can rely on it. Um, so how do we get, you know, these, uh, solutions into the hands of people, um, so that they can have better care and access to everything that, you know, the health technology has to offer. That's great and very insightful because, yes, not everybody has technology in the palm of their hand like, you know, like us at this moment. Um, and so that's that's wonderful. Yeah, and I think it's great to see, you know, continues a trend of more health systems getting involved and helping to lead innovation, you know, trying to solve problems um in a unique way so that's really great Mm -hmm. beautiful solve all right so we've talked about those that are winning and now we're going to discuss who's failing and uh, of course there are some things that we can take away from the failures what you got yeah so the first one up is an incident where malware destroyed data of 30,000 patients so this incident happened 
um, with the Texas-based Fondren Orthopedic Group. And they started notifying people that their data was destroyed uh, after a malware incident back in November. So basically, it looks like um, data was uh, accessed by a hacker and some of the patient records um, were destroyed. Thankfully, they say there's no evidence that any of the data was actually extracted by the hacker, but it did um, destroy the medical records that include things like patient names, your diagnosis, treatment, health insurance data. So a lot of sensitive and important information were, was destroyed, but, you know, I guess if there's a silver lining, at least none of it was um, actually taken. Mm -hmm. It's just they won't have um, an opportunity to retrieve medical history for some? Yeah, for some, it looks like their data, I mean, you can almost think of it like back in the days of, uh, you know, paper medical records. If there's a fire and something happens, uh, you know, there's no retrieving it. Mm -hmm. So they didn't outline, you know, whether um, that malware impacted backups so there could be cases where you know maybe they can find um, an old backup of the medical history or something but um, it's unclear right now we just know that you know over 30,000 patients you know did have their patient data affected okay good to know and uh, what else can you tell us as far as uh, failures to report well we got one more that we're going to run over real quick and it's uh, from um Village Care Max and Village Care Rehabilitative and Nursing Center, um, their managed care plan members are being notified that their data was potentially breached after a security incident back on December 30th. So this one comes through good old-fashioned email where the most of the breaches happen. Um, an employee received a suspicious email from someone pretending to be a member of their executive team asking for information related to plan members. So this is often called uh, business email compromise, sometimes called display name spoofing. But basically, the employee saw an email in their inbox where the from had the name of someone from their executive team. So they thought, you know, okay, this is legitimate. This is my boss. I'll give you the information. It was only later that the employee notified um, leadership that, wait, it wasn't actually from, you know, that executive. So they launched an investigation and they did find out that um, the compromised data that was sent out was in fact to a hacker and it was uh, included names and Medicaid numbers. So, um, the VC Max has, um, they're reviewing their policies and everything, um, but right now they're just notifying patients and half, you know, all these people have to start monitoring their, um, their uh, identity, see if there's going to be any fraud that occurs. Interesting. What do you do if you get an email and it looks like it's from a source that you recognize? Well, it goes back to, you know, don't just check the name, check the actual email address because a lot of emails that come into your inbox now, especially like the iPhone, um, if you're on your mobile device, it's even worse. You know, you'll just see who it's from and it's someone's name. And that's the display name. And that name can be anything. But when you look at the actual email address, 
you take that one extra step to look at the email address, you can often see that it'll be from, you know, some uh, malicious some fake or fake one. email. Mm -hmm. Yeah. I mean, it could even be like, um, you know, if I'm sending something, if a hacker is trying to spoof me and it, instead of um, coming from at powbox.com, even though it'll have my name on the email, it'll just say, um, you know, it could be from, you know, fake email at gmail.com or something like that. Mm -hmm. So, you know, one is always look for the email address, not just the name of the person, make sure the email address is correct. And two, you can use um, software such as, you know, like Powbox. Our, we have Exec Protect, which actually stops those spoofs from actually getting to the inbox by verifying legitimate emails in the first place. So those are the two ways that you can kind of go about it. But definitely training is always going to be one because something's going to slip through. You know, hackers are moving fast as fast as we are. So that's true. Always be alert. All right. Well, Rick, as our chief marketing officer, uh, you had the opportunity to sit down with Andrew Hicks, vice president of risk management at Frazier and Dieter. Frazier and Dieter is one of the nation's fastest growing accounting and advisory firms, serving the evolving needs of clients from startups through global Fortune 500 companies. Building off of your, you know, your experience or deep experience you've had with assessments and um, healthcare, you know, high trust has really become a big signal in healthcare that an organization takes its security posture seriously. Uh, so, why do you think that is? Um, so I, I've been doing high trust for, for eight years and I've, I've kind of coined the phrase, at least I think I've coined it with, I can get behind anything I believe in. And high trust is an organization that, right. They established themselves about what, 15, 16 years ago with the initiative to, I mean, the number one goal is to, to um, increase or boost cybersecurity awareness and the overall control of organizations around PHI. Now that scope has expanded out to other industries and, Another uh, data classifications, but by and large, what they're doing is great for um, it's great for us as individuals. All right, our data is out there, um, but it's great from an organizational perspective because it is a dynamic framework. It's scalable. It's all the things they say it's going to be, and that it is. Um, and so, from a from a organizational perspective, um, what I like about it is is it truly enhances your your cybersecurity program. It serves as the foundation. It allows you to, to basically measure your, your overall cybersecurity posture and really make decisions around where you're going to invest as an organization um, to, to drive greater enhancements to your, your cybersecurity program. Great. I know that when we were telling people that Powbox was going through high trust, you know, we got a lot of sympathy because it seems like such a daunting process. And it really was for us when we were first approaching it. Um, but I, I like that you don't think that it really has to be daunting. Um, can you share a little bit more about why you think that is? Yeah, this, so Rick, this is what really, really gets me excited. I, my mission is in life, or at least in this chapter of my life, is one word, and that word is simplification. Whether it's high trust, whether it's HIPAA, whether it's FedRAMP, whatever it is, I, I know the market extremely well. I know what organizations go through, and all of these uh, regulatory, um, you know, uh, 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 regulations that are out there, 
and the cybersecurity challenges when you start talking about assessments, it does not need to be as, um, as archaic and confusing as what it is. So my, my, my purpose here is really to stand up uh, a couple lines of uh, service. And uh, what, I, what I'm doing is taking the customer side. So what uh, the customer experience has been traditionally, all of those pain points going through the process and then building a methodology off of that. So it's 100% with the customer in mind. And then secondly, and somewhat selfishly, it's with our assessor team in mind because there's a lot of attrition. There's a lot of burnout from all of these various types of uh, assessments. And so finding harmony with a methodology that makes sense, that simplifies the process. Um, these, these engagements, they don't need to cost 100000 200000 plus. Um, I, it just It's just bringing better tools, better process to the overall assessment uh, lifecycle. Okay, great. And how do you really, you know, you say you mentioned bringing tools to the table. Um, maybe you can talk a little bit more about how exactly you simplify assessments, um, but still, you know, but still being comprehensive. Yeah, so I'll say, you know, just knowing again, the, the assessor community out there, it is not uncommon for assessors to hand over whatever we want to call them, PBCs, ERLs, RFIs, it's, it's the request list. And in the high-trust space, that list can be 300, 400, 500 items of very specific asks and looking for a way or building a way to, number one, collect that data in a much more efficient manner, but also reducing the ask and finding, being, uh, being intelligent in terms of, instead of asking for you know, five very specific things, wording that in a way where I can ask for one thing and, and reduce the overall number of, of asks. So I think that, um, you know, the, the intake of documentation and evidence, that process needs to be greatly simplified. Right now, it's very typical for an assessor to book a conference room and sit across from a control owner for hours and hours and hours and on to the next control owner and then on to the next control owner. There's a lot of time and that information, it has to be collected, but how we collect that is it is the best use of our time to sit face to face and go through everything, or are there better ways to collect that information? Um, so that's another area we're investing heavily in. And then the other thing I would say is, um, you know, typically assessors they work in Excel. We're we're not doing Excel at all. <laughs> that 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 is uh, uh, the opposite of simplification. Um, so what what we're doing is looking at ways to streamline the process. So. Um, instead of looking at 500 rows or 500 requirements, we're looking at a subset of that because we've harmonized the framework. There are ways to take a very uh, robust framework like NIST 853 or High Trust or whatever it is, ISO, and harmonizing that down around key topics and asking more precise questions to get better answers and then extrapolate those results back out to the greater um, number of requirements. So that's you know, a couple examples, two or three examples of things that we're looking and investing heavily in. Um, but the the madness around how engagements and assessments are performed today, that is a huge, quite honestly, it's a it's a disservice on, in the assessor community and the consulting community back to, to organizations because there's a lot of ways to improve it and streamline it. And, and still and hold the integrity of the engagement and the quality. Right. Well, that's great. Uh, you know, I know that that sounds all fantastic from the organization side, <laughs> the side being assessed. Uh, and it sounds like too, like that's a great um, scalable way, you know, not just for the initial assessment, but as you go through your like annual or biannual reviews. 
Absolutely. Yeah. Well, one thing I uh, do a lot of encouraging of customers and uh, to do is right. Don't treat, don't treat an assessment as a point in time, fully embrace whatever you're doing, adopt it as your framework and look at ways to do continuous monitoring. The assessment shouldn't just, it shouldn't be a, you know, uh, you got caught with your hand in the cookie jar moment. It should be, Hey, we've already prepared for this because we've been managing our controls for, you know, the last 10 months since the last engagement. So it shouldn't be this massive lift every single year. It should be broken out into, you know, bits and pieces throughout the year. So you're actively managing. And quite honestly, it's, it's making your uh, cybersecurity program much more dynamic than if you're just treating it as an assessment. Yeah, that's fantastic. And I, I look forward to hearing how you guys are coming along with that and, you know, really pushing the, that assessor industry forward. And for more information and to read the full interview, you can visit our website, powbox.com. That's P-A-U-B-O-X.com. Thank you, Rick, for that insightful interview. Now, can you share with us some of your predictions as we continue to move forward in 2020? Sure. Uh, so one uh, prediction that we think is going to happen um, is there's going to be more inter- Internet of Things devices that are going to be used this year for healthcare. And we saw that at all the big conferences that happened at the beginning of the you know year, uh, CES, the JP Morgan week that just happened in San Francisco, um, and HIMSS, which is coming up in March. You know, there's a lot of emphasis on a rise in consumer-focused technologies to engage patients and help uh, health outcomes. So those are those apps. Um, it could be devices that are used um, during treatment. So that's all great. And, you know, anything we can do to help out health outcomes is awesome. But what that also does is it increases the attack surface that hackers can go after. So there's going to definitely be a spike in breaches later this year as a lot of these things get pushed out and hackers start poking and trying to find the holes in it. Um, so we'll see a few more of those type of breaches um, later on in the year. And again, it just goes back to anytime you introduce a new, sp- new piece of technology, you're introducing a new risk. So making sure that we're always looking at security at design when we're trying to be innovative. And, um, but definitely something to take, uh, keep an eye out for uh, especially for consumers. Amen to that. All right. Well, thanks for joining us on this latest edition of Hypocritical, the Powbox podcast. And thanks for tuning in. Thank you.